And we're live. What's up, everybody? So that's a new uh, countdown timer, and it's my second time hearing it, and I just realized I don't really like it. Um, chat, what do you think? How, how do you like that countdown timer? Do we keep it, or do we get a new one? Um, anyways, great to see you all here. Before we get started, a quick shout-out to our Patreon Visionary members. We have Trivium Energy PTYLTD, SOG Cannabis, Max Marine, Geffen Posner, Adam Becker, Raja, Maya, Kimberly, Nate Hinman, Julian Meltzer, and our newest visionary member, Jordan Walter. Welcome to the club. And a huge shout out to our one and only legendary member, Speedy Weedy. Speedy Weedy is a cannabis delivery company in Southern California. They also have a few storefronts. So if you live in the area and you're looking for a delivery service, you can find a link to them in the description. If you want to support the show, you can find ways to support the show in the description. All support is greatly appreciated. Uh, before we introduce our guest, who I'm very excited to have on today, um, next, I'm going to Midburn uh, next week. Midburn is Israel's Burning Man. It's the third biggest burn in the world after Burning Man and Africa Burn. If you're not familiar with the burn uh, culture or the, the events themselves, look it up. It's One can say it's a life-changing experience. That'll be not for everybody. Um, so I'm not going to be around next week, but we're going to have Tal Hagen um, uh, putting together a roundtable discussion. So we still will have content. We will not leave you hanging. The show must go on. Um, so our, our guest today, Oh Halamish, he is a longtime community member of ours, um, very active in our Discord community. And he's one of the most knowledgeable people in our community when it comes to things like history, international law, uh, finance. He knows it all. So it was clear we have to bring him on, and you know, he, here he is. Or it's a it's a great pleasure to have you. How are you doing, Adar? I hope all is fine over there in Israel right now. Yeah, it's great. Um, I, I am sometimes fallible, so I do do sometimes mistakes, and I expect people to correct me. So uh, this is but I want to but it's that it's that ability to acknowledge that you're not always right is what we respect and appreciate here, right? Someone who thinks they're always right. They're not our friends. So um, it's great to have you here. Uh, for those wondering, I, I don't have my webcam today, so the quality isn't as hot as it could be, but um, I got my mic plugged in. So those listening to the audio version, hello, hello. Um, cool. Or quick introduction, then we'll get to the topic at hand. So I will say, I first of all, I'm a pure Jerusalemite. My father is a Jerusalemite. My grandfather is a Jerusalemite. Uh, my grand-grandfather is actually Hebonite. So from my father's side, we have long uh, tradition of being in the Holy Land or uh, Land of Israel or Palestine, any way we want to describe it. So my family and I grew up in the conflict. And unfortunately, you know, I, I was one of those 90s boys that grew up within the Second Intifada. Uh, but in the same time, I was also the 90s boy, but grew up with uh, Arab students in my school in Jerusalem. So, and by the way, some of them were Arabs from Haifa that decided to go to Jerusalem. Some of them were Jerusalemites as well. Some maybe they will call themselves Palestinians. Some will actually, actually some went to the army. So it's it's complicated. And I saw this complica complication arising and, as I moved uh, to the U.S. for my studies, 
I also received an external perspective, a perspective of simplification of the issues, the way to create a world that is black and white, which rarely actually tackles the main problem in this conflict. And this is what's worrying me, because if you simplify things, you tend to jump into simple solutions. But until today, we did not see any success. Or, or, or real quick, sorry to interrupt you. I'm just getting some word that uh, you're a little low. Your volume is a little low. So if you could just move the mic closer. Here we go. I hope it's a little bit better. Yep. Uh, sounds better to me. Uh, chat, if it's not, let me know. But I think we're good. And this is why we need to talk about uh, the nuances. And I myself actually experienced those nuances when I was in the military. And of course, I'm right now not representing the military. I'm not representing anyone right now. I'm not representing the Israeli government. government. But when I was in the military in the liaison uh, department, I, I used to work with the UN peacekeeping forces in Lebanon. I used to work with the UN peacekeeping forces in uh, Syria. I used to work with the Egyptian uh, military. I used to work with the MFO, which are also peacekeeping forces, but no one knows in Sinai. Uh, we also worked with the Jordanian army. We actually also somehow worked with the Lebanese army. And the moment you look above those simplifications, you see that the ground is much more nuanced and there are ways to actually improve the situation that looks impossible. No one thought in 1999 or 1998 that there will be a solid line between Lebanon and Israel. And here we have the blue line, which, by the way, is not an international board. It's a disengagement line. It was unilaterally decided by Israel and the UN to draw this line. And although the talk about Hezbollah, although the talk about Iranian influence in Lebanon, and although the people of Lebanon are suffering, and here this is something we need to acknowledge as well, the reality that Israel is not in South Lebanon, occupying South Lebanon, having forces in South Lebanon, and have at least 95% clear line that divides Israel and Lebanon, it's a better situation for everyone. And now we need to talk about how we can create the same situation in the West Bank and Gaza. And of course... Uh, to see it's a little bit more complicated than the Lebanese uh, uh, front, but it's still something that is very plausible, something that people are talking about and pushing it. And I think in recent days, it's actually become the main topic of all politicians of how to do so. So thank you all. Um, we're, we're getting word that your volume is better, but it still can be improved. So if you could increase the volume on your end, on, on my, through StreamYard, I put it on like 200%, but maybe there's something you could do to get it a little higher. 100% so, if it works. I, yeah, I actually think it's it's better now. Whatever you did seemed to work. Uh, but chat, let me know. So the cat's out of the bag. You uh, you you came out supporting the two-state solution. That's that's the topic of, uh, of the conversation. Um, the two-state solution still till today seems to be the most commonly spoken of solution, but it seems like it's losing support uh, day by day. People think it's no longer viable because of uh, expansion of settlements in the West Bank, and also because the will of the people doesn't seem to be in line with the two-state solution. What I mean by that is polling shows us around 30% of Palestinians support a two-state solution, 
and around 50% of Israelis support a two-state solution. So that is only, hold on, my math is a little bit off. You have, so again, you have 70%, yeah, 70% of the population that does not support it. So my my math might have been a little bit off, but 70 or so percent. so, you know, looking looking at public opinion, um, looking at the fact that you have over half a million Jews living in the West Bank, many people think the two-state solution is dead. Um, but today is going to be an opportunity for you or to make, to make the case that it's still very much alive, but not only alive, the, the best and most viable solution out there. So that's really what we're here to talk about. Um, let's do it. So... Yeah, I guess you could you could um, make the pitch. Okay, so before we actually, you know, until now, probably many speakers before me spoke about the history and what happened, um, and I'm actually more in the Sharon kind of approach about history. When uh, Sharon decided to go to study history, they asked him to go back, and he's like, "No, I'm here to study history to learn about our mistakes," and then he, he was told. You can study history or make history. And then he decided to make history. And he went back to politics. He he decided to do a 2005 disengagement. So, and he was, by the way, one of the biggest proponents initially for the settlements. He was the biggest proponent for the Gaza settlements. He was the biggest uh, 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 war hero or war villain, depends on which perspective you are, uh, in many fronts. And he himself understood the two-state solution will happen. And it starts from the basic truth. And this is something we need to understand. In the past 150 years, for a very short time, there was a one-state reality. However, for most of the history, we were two different entities that lived separately. And I'm talking already from the Ottoman era. And I did a small uh, picture that will probably represent... uh, in a simplified way. I don't want to get into uh, uh, exact, but uh, c- can you see the presentation? Uh, no, here, you got to add to stream. There we go. There we go. Okay, so let me even open it. Oops, there we go. Okay. Yeah. So in the end of the day, we have this vision, but back in uh, in 1888 or even 1910, there was a unified area uh, of everyone were living together. And people were living together, but pretty much on in their own communities. This is something that we need to remember. The Ottomans had a very clear policy of breaking up uh, communities to run them separate. And by the way, their legacies still live today. For example, something that is a big issue is the reality that uh, in Israel, for example, and in the Palestinian Authority area, and even in other places in the Middle East, Marriage is based on community laws. Therefore, it can, can only happen uh, within the religious institutions. And we don't have a state institution of marriage in the Ottoman Empire. You decentralize institutions and you make people live together. So the Palestinians and the Jews, were maybe some of them were living together in specific places like Hebron, Jaffa, or uh, Jerusalem. But in general, the Jewish community and the Palestinian community lived very separately. And it became even more 
transparent with time. And more than that, if you look at Tel Aviv, Poly Tel Aviv, as founded in the Ottoman era, was the example of separate people in separate places. And it's also separate institutions that had separate governance. They did not rule in the same, under the same state. They had the same sultan or emperor, however you want to describe it, but they were still living separately. And this map, uh, you can see, of course, um, the map of the era. It was original uh, map for administration. By the way, it doesn't mean the Palestinian identity did not exist. It doesn't mean the Israeli identity doesn't exist, didn't exist. The Israeli identity was not called Israeli back then. It was called Tzabarnik. If there was an idea already of a Jewish local in a, the land of Israel or a Jewish local in later on Palestine, but exist in the separate communities. And let's be frank here, the British mandate of Palestine reinforced it. Many, many Jewish institutions became from sports to national insurance to social security. And both institutions, like Israel was in existence already in the 1920, everything but by name. And also the Palestinian community began to formalize and become more centralized. So there is a process of, of in the end of the day, of a, creating a stronger centralized identity for the Palestinian, while the Jewish community, which was much smaller, by the way, was very centralized due to its small size. So even under the mandate of Palestine, we see two separate entities developing. And here I want to show you uh, actually the example. In the era of the mandate of Palestine, we have three main uh, steps. Okay, And each step clearly describes how each people saw themselves. On the left, there is a stamp of Palestine for the Arabs. This is when many of the Palestinians understood there is some issue of Jewish immigration. They were afraid of the reality. Uh, they were afraid that they are losing control because they did see the Israeli institutions or the Yishuv institution, to be more exact, as more powerful, as more influential. While the Israelis or the uh, Yishuv were building their own steps in Hebrew, separate from, from the Arab community and separate from the uh, British mandate. And of course, we have the famous one of the British mandate that was disconnected from the civilians themselves. They were more running things on a higher level and they were trying to please everyone. This is why we have this famous Palestine in English, Palestine in Arabic, pa Palestina in Hebrew, and then a small land of Israel uh, uh, as well within it. So even the British mandate understood they were dealing with two different entities from the beginning. And now I want to see, and I want to show, by the way, how each side perceived the reality, because both sides perceived the reality very differently. Okay? And when we're talking about 1947, before the patrician, we have two different narratives. Okay? And both narratives can be true in the same time in some ways. One of them is on the right, where we see those Jewish communities popping up and created. Okay? And it seemed very centralized and seemed very uh, separate than the Arab uh, Palestinian, but it seems all over and all controlling. While the Israeli narrative, we're seeing actually a different picture. We're seeing a picture of many small plots. Some of them are uh, privately owned. Some of them are communally owned Arab uh, plots, which are in green, solid green. 
The other are Jewish privately owned or communally owned in a solid blue. And then most of the land was state land. And I can understand, by the way, and I, uh, I do understand from both sides why the Palestinian and the Arabs justify say, oh, this state land was meant for my Palestinian state. While the Jewish side said the same thing. And the British side say, continue fighting for about who owns the what, but I actually own the white area. So there is a there is a already a formation of a two-state reality very, very early. And of course, from there we know how uh, the reality became. We got separated, hard separation with massacres, with killing, with war. It was ethnic transfer of both sides, ethnic cleansing on both sides. Uh, for example, I, I can say uh, my family specifically experienced the 1929 um, uh, massacre in Hebron, and they need to leave to Jerusalem. But then it's a little bit more uh, nuanced as they actually got help from uh, Jerusalemite Palestinians, and they switched houses in Jerusalem, and their house in Hebron. So... There was some cooperation, and then I feel that 1947 actually killed most of the cooperation to a very two uh, entities uh, where Israel consolidated to his own territory. The Palestinians got controlled by the Egyptians and the Jordanians. And this is where I think most of us know what's uh, the history from here. But there is need to understand that the Egyptian government already in 19, actually something I discovered recently, in 1949, 1950, was trying to establish a Palestinian government, okay, in Gaza. So, and it actually fell because of a Jordanian annexing the West Bank. So there is a reality to in this place where we have a clear 19, uh, two states. And we never had a one state until now. And this is something that we need to remember here. The only time we had probably the opportunity for a one state, ironically enough, is after 1967, where I will say, and everyone knows this map, that Israel took control of the West Bank, took control of Gaza, took control of Sinai, later on gave Sinai back uh, in a peace agreement uh, with Egypt. And this reality was probably the only time, which was very short, was probably for around 20 years when we had uh, a a one-state reality, but very quickly we have today. And today's reality is the complicated one, not the easy one, but the one that this direction is very clear. We're talking about a, a creation of a, a, right now of, a, actually today practically we have three states minus, I will call it like that, but we have a clear Israeli state that controls Palestinian life, control part of their uh, lifestyle, their economic activity, and many other things. And I'm not talking about Gaza right now. I'm talking about the West Bank, where the West Bank Israel has a lot of influence, and we'll see why. And But we have also the reality of a formation of the PA, under the PLO. And the PA, with all its corruption and with all its uh, minuses, is starting to becoming a state in every word there is. And it's not there yet. And I will later on provide the argument of what Israel, as an Israeli, and Israel should do in order to make this a reality. But today, if you go to Bethlehem, if you go to Hebron, if you go to Jenin, 
you don't see Israeli IDs uh, in the cars. You see the Ministry of Transportation of the PA. You see the Ministry of Water of the PA. You see ministries that are disconnected from the Israeli government in any sense. There is a state within a state in some ways. And now telling me to liquidate everything, it's something that the PA will never, I believe, will never give up power that easily. It's not something that Israel actually wants. So anyone who is talking about one state first need to destroy at least three states in the process, including Hamas. And this reality, no one actually talks about when they're talking about the one state. You know, it's it's easy to tell someone, let's form this, but let's destroy the reality of today. And of course, no one will fight against this reality. Uh, and this is where I think the problem is arises, especially because the one state talk started from the outside, actually. It started from in America, started in uh, Europe. And by the way, also from Jewish diaspora and Palestinian diaspora. Because if you truly, and and let's thoroughly complicate the issue, Hamas and the Gaza Strip and Israel are disconnected in every way. Although there is a one electric, electric line, although there is one water pipe, it doesn't mean Israel actually has control of the uh, Gaza Strip. It does provide a blockade, of course. People there, of course, are suffering. But you're telling me that in a one-state solution, you're liquidating Israel, the government that doesn't want to be liquidated, and Hamas that doesn't want to be liquidated? This is nonsense. And Or and, just, yeah. I, I want to make sure I understand the, this this chart here, because it's, it's interesting. So the blue would be Israel proper. The circle would be Israel's control. So they're showing that they control um, Israel proper and part of the West Bank. That would be Area C. Right. Yes. Am I yeah. understanding this correctly? It, it, metaphorically, I don't want to. Oh, this is actually area C is 60 percent and, and it seems a little bit less. But it is a metaphorical. But in the end of the day, we have the PLO. Um, but w- once in a while is also Hamas. Not today, if I'm not mistaken, uh, which the PLO represents the diaspora and the PA. Well, the PA is this small uh, red uh, circle and Hamas, but its own separate green circle controlling its own people and of course israel okay, is affecting the reality here but if we look at in practice the direct control of what we consider governance and state control it's very minimal uh, it affects palestinian but it's the israeli bureaucrat in the end of the day doesn't even know how to deal with a palestinian population unless he view them as a non-Israeli entity, or I, I don't want to use the word foreigners, but as to use them as non-Israelis uh, and non-residents as well, by the way. So Israeli institutions are built today to view them as a separate state, actually. <laughs> and this is something maybe people will be surprised, but the, today when there is a planning process, the West Bank is excluded. Gaza is ex- excluded. Very few times... There is inclusion of the West Bank in planning processes, etc. Israel made sure in 1967 not to actually integrate administration within the West Bank for many reasons. But now I want to go to the complicated part of today's reality of why, if we arrive to where we arrived, and which is, by the way, in the 90s was the right direction from both sides, I believe of uh, the Oslo Accord of Oslo 1 and Oslo 2. But we arrived to a 
what it seems a blockade for both sides, by the way. And it seems this blockade is created by the perception. And I think this will surprise Americans. I think it surprised Europeans. I think it will surprise Palestinians and Israelis that both sides perceive the other side as the stronger and the weaker in the same time. And this sounds absurd. I, I understand that. As Israeli, of course, our army is strong, or it seems strong. As a Palestinian, we know that uh, uh, our de- dem- demographic threat is the number threat for the Israelis. And I think the problem that we are arriving today, that both sides think time is on their side. And this is why we don't see any movement. Because if time is on your side, you have no reason to decide. Um, and this is probably what we need to understand why nothing is happening. Because from both... And by the way, I'll, I'll show an example, a concrete example of how it's being perceived. If you think your position will improve with time, you will wait. This is why this is, was the actual policy of Bibi publicly to wait and see for a better partner while the position of the PA or the PLO was not necessarily wait and see, but let's just be active in places that they agree with us 100% with our positions. And the biggest example of how this uh, perceived of a power that I am stronger and they're stronger, by the way, doesn't mean the Palestinians think they're stronger militarily or anything like that, but just there's a perception that uh, 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 with time, they can actually ask for more or receive more as well. And I actually took two uh, two ideas, one from a... Israeli, I'll call it right-wing Israeli think tank, and one from a, a, a quote, a famous quote by uh, Yasser Arafat, where the Yasser Arafat said, and I'm paraphrasing right now, that the Palestinian biggest weapon is the Palestinian womb, the idea that eventually the Palestinians will populate the entirety of histor- historic uh, Palestine, and of course then it will be a one-state uh, reality. On the other the right-wing Israeli think tank said, oh, look at the demographic issue. It's actually not an issue. Actually, Jewish women are making more babies. We just need to wait, and our position will get better. So both sides think they they can wait. And waiting usually is not a good uh, solution for anything. And I'll give you an example. There was a general in uh, the Yugoslavian war that was talking about the issue of uh, refugees in uh, Kosovo and and Serbia and Croatia. And he said that we have two options. Even look at reality and try to make the best for the refugees today or to insist of returning to what was and let the refugees suffer for years or even generations. When I read this quote, I thought I was actually reading about the Israeli-Palestinian issue. This quote actually refers to a different conflict, but they decided to see the reality of today and move forward in order to provide a solution for all people. And we're not talking about, Yugoslavia was not two people, it was several people, and it was very complicated and it was very bloody, but they decided to finish uh, and provide a solution to resolve the conflict. And we... And by the way, and this is where I want to actually show where wait and see tactic 
can result a very good or a very bad uh, uh, result. And the best example I'll probably say is the Golan Heights. In 1974, Israel and the Syrians decided to sign a, an agreement. But Syria, I, by the way, if someone wants to read it, they're welcome to read. Syria agreed that Israel will occupy the Golan Heights until they reach a final resolution on an international board. Right now, we don't have international board. Right now, we have a temporary line. A line that doesn't reflect uh, what probably the Syrian people want. And I understand that. But the waiting and waiting and waiting created a situation that today, but the language changed from occupation to a border dispute. And I, I know it's not the West Bank, it's, it's, but the Golan Heights is a little bit different. But from the Syrian perspective, they lost a lot of will from the international community in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010, and today. While Egypt decided to go and do a move in a few years. And by the way, it, it just shows that time is on no one's side. And it can be, by the way, it could be for Israeli, uh, it could not be good for Israel, maybe in the long run as well, but this is a different conversation. Second example of what happened when we don't do anything is the blue line. Israel was occupying the Litani until the Litani River or South Lebanon until 2000. And this is something that people are surprised. Israel and Lebanon never had international border. They never agreed where the line crosses. And the Lebanese government decided not to talk to the Israelis, justifiably or not. But it created a reality that the Israel approached the UN and told the UN, let us make a line. This line we'll call the disengagement line. It will not be international board. And, we, and this will decide, but we are not occupying Lebanon anymore. And the UN agreed, drew this line. And now Lebanon are asking for an area that's called the Shaba Farm or Mount Tal. And internationally, they don't have any legitimacy to those requests. So this is where actually time again was on not on the Lebanese side. And although today there are some tactical issues, but I will not get into it. So where are we today? And let me make, make it clear, I'm talking from an Israeli perspective. Um, for me, as an Israeli, I don't ask what the Palestinian can do. It doesn't mean they cannot do anything. I ask what I, as an Israeli, what, what I as the, expect from the Israeli government and state and people to do. And we can look at three options that are presented. And it's not an accurate representation of those people's opinion, but I think it reflects uh, a, a nice picture of uh, what happened. Bibi is in the position of managing the conflict without a political goal. He's saying, I can create a, a reality where Israelis can go and sleep at night and not be aware that the conflict exists. exists. I can minimize, uh, I can uh, uh, buffer up security in Gaza. I can buffer up the security in the West Bank. And we can keep the reality as it is until I will wait for someone that is willing to compromise on what I want. Okay, and this was, by the way, official policy. It's something that was inside the government. It was inside in outside in speeches, if you study the speeches well. And then we have a position of Sharon, also Umert, I will say, and maybe even Rabin in some ways, 
that, yes, there is a conflict. You need to manage it, but you need to have a goal in, and in order to, and responsibility. Meaning, but Sharon decided, listen, I know that I don't want to control the people of Gaza. I don't want to control the people in the West Bank. Therefore, I should do a move myself in order to eventually be in a reality that I can solve the conflict with the Palestinians. The idea is that, and I, by the way, it's an idea that I'm an Israeli and many Israelis really believe after the Second Intifada. But right now, the Palestinians are incapable of reaching an agreement because of key issues that also Israel is incapable of achieving. And to do that formula of land for peace, which was the formula since 1967, is not working anymore. Because right now, Israelis and Palestinians are incapable of achieving compromise that, will, that both can agree on. So this is where, as an Israeli, I think we need to create a reality where we help the Palestinians be in a better position for themselves. And with an Israeli, morally and practically, by the way, and for Israelis, the practical side is more important. For the international community, the moral question is more important. But to minimize the occupation, okay, not in order to keep the reality as it is, but in order to be in a better position for two states reality. And those positions are held, you'll be surprised by almost every party beside one small extreme right party on different levels. Even Bennett, that in 2012 had a proposal of annexing Area C, seems he even himself moved more to the left on those positions. Again, understand that he needs to do the move. Sharon, that was a lifelong Likud, moved into those issues. And it's Olmert as well. And eventually, I want to be in a place where we can have someone. Because even if we, because even we have Rabin today, by the way, even if we have merits today in uh, the government, I don't see with a whole resolution being achieved today. But I do think Israel can improve the infrastructure of achieving peace tomorrow, and this is the important key that we need to promote it in Israelis. And this is now the very theoretical world that we are talking until now. But let's look at actual proposals, but people used to look at, and I think what people are looking at today is, again. Um, and by the way, this may look familiar, but not fully familiar for people. And not many people know that, but Sharon had a bigger plan than 2005, and not only to leave Gaza, but also to leave uh, uh, many places in the West Bank. And the first phase was to leave actually the Northwest Bank or the Janine area. And the idea is that, yes, Israel is still maintaining some of the settlements, especially the big ones, which, by the way, represents more than 80% or 75% of the actual people who live in settlements. This is something that I want to note. Uh, but it's about leaving the core areas for the Palestinian in order for them to build governance. Because if you live in Janine, with this map, you can drive to uh, Nablus without seeing one Israeli soldier, without seeing one Israeli police, without seeing one Israeli citizen. And this was, I think, the right direction to 
go to. And I didn't, I'm not reading the commentary yet, but I believe someone will say, or, whoa, you're doing this, and uh, Hamas went to power. And I agree, Hamas did go to power. And by the way, you know who actually said Hamas will go to power if we will do that? The Palestinians, okay? In 2004, uh, at five, uh, Ertat actually sent a letter to uh, Bush telling him, and you can read uh, the letter, but if Israel will do uh, disengagement unilaterally, they will lose legitimacy. And I agree with them. This will happen under Sharon because now we need to talk the problem of the 2005. The problem was not a disengagement. The problem is that we did not try to provide credit to the right people. And the PA was more engageful than Hamas back then. The PA should have received the credit by at least showing diplomatic success, at least by showing uh, the true credit to where uh, we're going and not violent resistance. This is why since 2005, the Palestinians, from the, they look at the Israelis like, look, only after the Intifada you left uh, Gaza. What were you thinking? Of course, we will continue fight. Resistance is the only thing that achieved anything. And if you look at history, it looks like that. However, I think it's actually not that 100% true. And this is why the past resistance we saw did not create anything, did not create any political achievement to the Palestinian people. And this is why we need to be very careful in saying only resistance achieve anything. And this is now I want to show actually plans that were not never published, but only went through protocols. And those are maps uh, created by a, a researcher on the conflict by Shaul Arieli. And he said, look, Sharon had two, a plan 2.0. On the right, we see the current reality of uh, enclaves of the Palestinian people. Sharon was talking about slowly expanding. And by the way, disengaging in small settlements uh, in uh, the West Bank in order to create a slowly a governance that is continuous and but is more independent and hopefully uh, more looking like a state than uh, a chain of violence. And here we can already see actually settlements that still exist. And I don't want to name them right now because it's not about me saying this, this guy should go or this girl should go. It's about showing that both elements that uh, are pointed out, and by the way, I, one of them is actually has my last name there, uh, are actually very small settlements. We're talking about few hundreds, okay? We're talking about settlements that are disconnected from the Israeli uh, infrastructure, that are disconnected from uh, Israel proper in many ways, they're disconnected from the settlement block. Those elements are very ideological driven, and they make life hell to Palestinians. And it's not only because of the recent violence we're talking about, it's also because of practical reasons. For example, if you look at the South Hebron, you see there are probably, I don't know if you can see it, but you, you can see here there are three main uh, lines, uh, roads, but actually cross the Hebron area. And those three roads are controlled by four, not controlled, but there are four settlements presented there. Those four settlements are a few hundred people 
creates the reality that the IDF needs to be there to protect the settlements. It creates the reality of, but in order to connect infrastructure from water to electricity, there need to be approval with the Israeli government. And the moment there need to be an approval in the Israeli government, what will happen if the Israeli government and the Palestinians are not on the best term? So you cannot really help your own people, if even, even if you want to, by the way. And those things Israel can solve today because we already saw, and this is actually something that many people will be surprised, but even Likud agreed to disengage from most of those settlements uh, in a future agreement. So now, as an Israeli, I can say something, that those areas need to be considered first in order to do the first move. I understand that we cannot do a one-whole agreement today for a two-state reality, but we can improve the likelihood of a two-state by disengaging in the places that we already said that we're not willing to actually control in the future. And we can use this as a tool to force also the PA to, first of all, to tell them, listen, we'll provide you the credit. Because credit to do, you actually maintain the peace in the West Bank for so many years, relatively. If we think about it, the West Bank it was very peaceful. By providing this territory as a win, there can show to their people we are succeeding. And this is the reality. You never run if you don't have success. One of the reasons we don't have elections within the PA because they're incapable of providing any success to their people. A mayor will not run until he fixes the road in the city. And we need to help the Palestinians to fix the roads in the city in order for them to even have an election. An election will create more accountability. It will create more uh, legitimacy that the PA really needs. The PA will be more flexible to be more engageful with Israel on security, on planning, on visas, etc. And maybe the Palestinians can do their own first move, but for the Israelis, we today have options to move today. And this is just a plan from 2005. There are also mo more modern plans that we can go over. A second one is actually someone you brought, which is Olmert. Uh, you were talking about the 2008 proposal. I will actually first talk about the 2006 idea. Uh, he, his idea was to do uh, re-enlightenment or... Uh, uh, in Hebrew, he called it, uh, actually, there are so, several names of, for it, but the idea was to consolidate the settlement block. And here we see we have something that looks less like an island more than, and more like a three big islands, which is an improvement. And the idea is not necessarily to have it uh, be the final bores, but first of all, it will improve Palestinians' life. But from an Israeli perspective, it will, and this is me being frank, if Israel will have done that, the conflict will have minimized to much less, and the conflict will have been more about how to fix the borders, how to fix economic issues, and from Israeli perspective, it will also allow, and this is me being very, very, very frank, to forget about the question about the right of return. This is why the Palestinians are actually also against one-sided solution, uh, one-sided move by the Israelis, not because they're afraid of Hamas only, but because they understand that if Israel decides the borders and improves their situation, the cards of the right of return decreases, and 
now we can talk how to solve the right of return without having the right of return or something have something similar to that. But this is actually why I think Israel, strategic goal, which was very clear by every prime minister since the 90s, is actually to disengage eventually with the Palestinians or without the Palestinians. And the reality also that the settlers don't like to mention, most of the growth of the settlements are actually internal. Most of the growth are actually in two big settlements, which are Beitar Elite and... Um, uh, I forgot the second one, but uh, Beitar Elite and the other elite, uh, Modin Elite, uh, which are actually very clo- close to the green uh, line. They're actually part of the settlement block. They are ultra-Orthodox settlements, and they constitute most of the growth of the settlement. And the smaller ones, although they're growing, they're growing very slowly, and uh, and there's less legitimacy to them as they used to be in uh, under other administrations especially after the 2001 agreement with Bush. So we have a reality that we, Israel can actually break the pi- pi- paradigm of Bibi, of wait and see, and go back to the fa- paradigm of Sharon to do, and this will create a two-state solution. My fear, and this is an honest fear, but we will have a two-state without peace, and we'll have a two-state without cooperation, and we'll have a two states without the ability of a Palestinian from Ramallah to drive to Tel Aviv for tourism or drive to Jerusalem uh, to pray, or a reality that Israeli cannot drive to Hebron and be there and go to uh, their uh, um, places uh, or travel in the West Bank uh, and hike in the Judean hills. This is a reality that I'm actually more afraid of. And this is where an Israeli, we need to make sure that if we create a uh, one-sided move, it's in order to push for more cooperation and not to push for uh, bigger walls. And I, I think this is something we need to be careful in the current administration, uh, of the Israeli administration, by Bennett. I feel Lapid is more approaching to cooperative approach and... This is the number one thing that I am actually worried about. And the one-state reality, it's, again, it's a reality that is less likely every day, not more likely. Because every government in the Israeli uh, uh, administration, even the right wing, by the way, which recently decided uh, people who used to be, let's annex the West Bank, like, oh, let's go to the Trump plan. But Trump actually moved many people on the right to the left because they understand they don't actually want to enact the West Bank. So we're talking about a reality that even the far right, not extreme right, but the far right are actually more open for a two-state solution than ever before. And this is a reality that Israel is capable of doing. And slowly it seems to have a bigger coalition to act. Um so, and this is why you'll probably hear the term shrinking the conflict. And shrinking of the conflict can be a two-sided sword. As I said, it's either can be about deciding the borders by Israel without cooperation or Israel uh, disengaging initially in order to build more cooperation in the future to allow a place where the Palestinian and the Israeli side are much closer in the ability to agree for a resolution. and. I think 
Israel can break this uh, paradigm that uh, by only uh, only by doing and not by not acting because this reality and I, w- I want for Israelis to look at this as well. This reality doesn't make any sense. You cannot live in a state like that. Look at those green dots. Those, this is not a reality that any you, you cannot build roads to solve this. I apologize. This is like Bennett 2012 plan. Even he understood it's unrealistic. Okay? And the Trump plan, it's maybe a little bit closer to reality, but I think we can look at the Trump plan and say, first of all, there are places that even the far right is willing to give up. Second of all, I, I think some of you can see the small dots. Both are the same, interesting enough, both are the same settlements that um, uh, uh, Sharon was actually thinking to disengage. So this is also a fruit for fun. So also those small enclaves, and we know are impossible to defend, they'll be actually abandoned probably in a real, in a real plan. So we already have even a list of places that are less likely to be kept within Israeli state. And this is why we need to seriously look at past plans to understand that this reality, okay, is closer to reality. And it's closer to, by the way, to a reality that if Israel will act unilaterally to maybe in the future create an agreement that is more acceptable, acceptable to the Palestinians. And I want to go to the final picture. And I think this is what people must understand. The goal for both nations, the Palestinians and the Jewish people, okay, is to create a Kent state. A Kent state is a, it's a new term that the European created for a friendly nation state. Uh, it's a, a way to describe a state that it represents a culture, that represents a people, that represents the people not only within the state, but also from, uh, within the diaspora. Okay, and kin states is actually a concept that became really strong in Europe, especially after the rise of the EU, especially after World War II. And we need to accept that as much as the Israeli people, the Jewish people, have a need for self determination and have a need to have a state to represent their peoplehood, not only in Israel but around the world, also the Palestinians are requesting the same thing. Ironically, the Palestinians are just Zionists but for their own people, as much as the Jews are Zionists for their own people. And I know many people will say, this is against the nation state. This is against the idea of, uh, 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 sorry, uh, internationalism is against the idea of nation state. We're moving to more international world. And I agree, we are being more unified. We're one human race, but in the old world, we, in the end of the day, nation states. The US, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, all those countries are actually abnormal. They're not the usual countries. They're actually the unique countries that we should be inspired by. Okay? The EU is trying to do something similar. But even the EU is built from many states that represent their own nation. Okay? If it's the UK that still has their own state religion, but they still have a, a, their own a, institution for the Scottish people, for the Welsh people, for the English people... Uh, or is it uh, Hungary, or is it Netherlands, or is it Spain, or is it Portugal? In the end of the day, those states are trying to integrate, but they're integrating as separate entities. And if you are actually for a one state, 
if you're actually for a federation, if you're actually for a confederation, first you need to build the first block. First uh, step is to build the two-state reality. And by the way, it doesn't need to be the 1967 line, but it needs to be something that is acceptable and respectable as much as you expect to be in a state that looks acceptable and respectable. And this is where Israel can do the first move if you are for any of those solutions. So a two states is not dead. It's right now the only possibility to build for any other solution. And this is how I will probably conclude uh, my statement. And I, I do recommend in the end of the day for outsiders to really come and see the two states reality that is already formed in many ways. And I do recommend for Israelis to actually critically look at things that the Israeli government already compromised and to understand that there's no need to fight for something that we ourselves decide that we will not want to keep, not only for moral reasons, which it's very important, but also for practical utilitarian reasons. And here I want to conclude and... uh, and by the way, I think we have a lot to talk about because there is also the issue of Jerusalem, which is very controversial, the issue of the right of return. But all those issues can actually have creative solutions, which we can talk about in the future, but can have uh, creative solutions within the context of the two states. If it's by providing vi- special visas for Israelis and Palestinians another 10 years, but maybe Palestinians can live in Israel in special visa, but they still have their own Kent state, or Israelis live in the West Bank uh, in special visa program. Those things are possible, but only if we're going to a two states, two Kent states, two cooperative states, or maybe in the future, confederation or federation, whatever uh, people will, whatever I hope my children will like. And um, this is something we need to remember. Thank you. Oh, that was uh, very informative. It's the most comprehensive uh, presentation on the two-state solution I've uh, I've ever experienced. So I appreciate that. Um, now let's get to like the tough questions, right? Because prior to us setting this up, you know, you acknowledge that you very much support two states, but you acknowledge that there's certain aspects of it that you don't quite know how we get there or how they would how certain solutions would turn out. So we're going to get to some of those questions. I'm going to allow the audience also to now start asking questions. Um, I saw in the meantime, we got a $20 super chat from super sticker from Jordan. Jordan, thank you so much. I very much appreciate it. We're going to try to get to as many questions as possible. Of course, we're going to prioritize super chats. Uh, Meanwhile, I'll ask the first question. So Commonly, when you talk about the two-state solution, you, you often hear from Israelis, but Palestinians don't want that. They've rejected it every single time it's been on the table. They're very loud and clear in their aspiration um, for Palestine to exist from the river to the sea. Um, and even the 30% that do support a two-state solution, some of them just view it as progress, but then they will continue the fight to reclaim the entire land. Right. So, so this is very much the Israeli objection to two states, why they think it won't work. What do you say to those Israelis and, and how do you think we could get Palestinians to be okay with such a, such a solution? It's a great question. And I think it relates to what I said in the beginning, both sides think time is on, on their side. And from my discussion with uh, many Palestinians and uh, 
by the way, not so by many Israelis, but also believe in this concept, uh, which, by the way, has some essence of truth into it. Uh, not necessarily 100%, but some truth into it. So it's very easy to manipulate partial truths. That the Palestinians have no interest to cooperate until uh, they achieve all their uh, demands because they can just wait, you know, even if it's 50 years or 100 years. Because if you think in another 100 years you achieve everything you want, why should you compromise? There's no reason for compromise. And the only time when the Palestinians were actually afraid of, uh, um, of the, the, they had a lot of pressure to actually do something is when Israel did their own moves first. Because I think the PA, and we can see, and if you are like interested, read the layers that the uh, prime minister of the PA sent to Bush. He is afraid of two things, not only of losing power if the disengagement is not done correctly, but in the end of the day, there's a tendency to think by the Palestinians, but if Israel will move first, it will create the first steps of uh, a border. And by the way, this is many why I'm against the wall or against the fence, because this fence represents in some ways a line that separates the two entities. And this line, if it's becoming more clear that Israel is more forceful into it, it will force the uh, Palestinians to rethink their strategic uh, goal and say, whoa, 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 whoa. We don't have another 100 years. We have another five years to solve the issue. This is where I think, and as, as Israeli, this is why I think right now if you have merits as the head of the government, they cannot achieve anything. But if we move to the right direction, it will pressure the Palestinians to uh, arrive to a, bear, uh, to a compromise, not because they want to, but because it will be their best choice uh, um, according to the calculus. And they will understand that wait and see will not achieve anything. And this is, by the way, I cannot predict the future, <laughs> but 100% risk-free uh, investments do not happen. You know, I'm from the financial world. Even if you buy the U.S. bond, it can fail, which is considered the safest thing in the world. I think just, just this, buy Bitcoin, <laughs> especially Bitcoin. Yeah, no, um, not, not in, that's not investment advice, though. Yes, it's not. But in the end of the day, we need to look at the risk, the lowest risk and the highest return. And for Israeli perspective, it's actually to do the first move. Okay, and we don't want to create a Hamas situation again, like 2005. This is why we need to make sure that when we do these moves, we need to communicate. We're not doing it because we're afraid of the Palestinians. And by the way, today Israelis are not afraid of the Palestinians militarily. So maybe we're talking about a, a different dynamic that is happening. You know, we didn't have a serious uh, intifada since 2005. And of course, we have the uh, Gaza conflict. But even the Gaza conflict, and although the suffering from the Gaza conflict, it's becoming less and less deadly for different reasons, by the way. And with time, we're talking about less deadly conflict. And it's not something I like to say, by the way. It's not good words to express, but it will show the Palestinians that we're not doing it because violence. We're doing it because we actually want to form a cooperative Palestinian state that Meaning, not that they do what we want, but they do what they want, but 
they understand as much as we need to also understand but it's a not a zero-sum game but uh, uh, by cooperating everyone is winning and it's a difficult approach and by the way people's mind can be changed it's not it's not something but uh, you know Israelis shifted their mind dramatically from 2004 to 2009 so you know we cannot live in the static world we need to live in a changing world thank you um, we have a super chat from George Hoxson thank you so much for the five dollars George George goes break Great presentation, or do you think Palestinians would be cool with some Jews living in their newly formed state? And I guess uh, and you could continue that and talk about how, what do you think disengagement would look like? Because I think this is many people's greatest concern, one yes. of their greatest concerns with two states. Um, I, I think we need to start with actually what's easy. You know, it's always easy to solve the easy part. And it has actually the highest reward, you know, and I give you examples and, you know, look at the map in the end of the day, look at two islands and ask yourself, why don't the Palestinians have a road that connects Janin to Hebron without seeing one Israeli person? And not in a way that is, we hate Israel, we don't want to be engaged with them, but in a way that they don't need to stop an Israeli uh, checkpoint, but they don't need to stop by Israeli military personnel. Those things are Step one to build trust. You know, right now the trust bank is zero. There's no trust bank. So you need to at least start putting some pennies into it before we're talking about the big dollars. And this is why if you start small, we can later on talk about the smaller settlements. And the small settlements are, we're talking about some of them are, I'll be frank with you, between 200 to 300 people. Those uh, sellers are more ideological, very likely. But... Israelis today, even Likud, will accept moving those settlements if there is something back from the Palestinians. So we need to start with what's easy, like empty spaces, empty lands. Yes, they do exist in the West Bank in order to show actual success. And I I think we can, by the way, if the trust bank is high enough, I, I do believe Palestinians and Jews can live together. Yeah, it's something that in reality that can happen, you know. I'll give actually a weird example, but this disconnected the conflict. Hungarians and Romanians live together, you know, and they were fighting each other. And uh, the Hungarians uh, have a very large population of people in Romania, and they're actually used to be annexed at, uh, in World War II, and then they came back to Romania. It's a possibility. It's not something that cannot happen. And and of course, it's a reality. But we will probably arrive to if we actually work together and if trust will be growing faster. But I'm okay with also a reality where we're talking about two separate entities, let's say like Greece and Turkey. But I prefer a reality, but not like Greece and Turkey, because right now Greeks and Turks are not working together well, but it's a better reality of the current uh, status quo. Great, thank you. Just a quick quick one. I I don't know if this is sarcastic, but Athene's asking what in the world does a less deadly conflict mean, because you referred to a less deadly conflict. Well, I mean, it's a conflict that's causing less harm to civilians. You know, let's say last year, 200 people were killed. Well, anything less than 200 would be less deadly, right? It's not, the conflict could get much worse and it could get much better. It's, 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 you know. It's not something I like to say. I I didn't say it sarcastically. It's something, but 
No, but I, I'm not sure if the question is sarcastic because I don't uh, really understand where it's coming from. Of course, it could be less deadly. It could be more deadly. It could be less deadly. I, I, it's almost like either it's sarcastic or it's like there's the impression that it could not possibly get worse. The, the, by the occupation way, is the single worst. And it's it's bad for Palestinians living under the occupation. But let's be honest, the conflict could get much worse. I can I can and give can an example of a less actually just give an example of a less uh, deadly conflict, which is uh, Greece and Turkey. Greece and Turkey are actually in the same alliance. There's still diplomatic conflict. There is actually in the 70s there used to be almost a war between them while being in the same alliance. But today, uh, don't I don't know if the I know the exact numbers, but today I can imagine. Not many Greek and Turks are dying due to the Greek-Turko uh, wars or conflicts. Uh, and of course, and I'm talking about two populations, but they killed millions of each other. Uh, the Turks expelled millions. Uh, the Greek expelled every Muslim from Greece. Uh, and it was actually by, sanctioned by international law as well back then. But we're still, still talking about a reality that is less deadly than it used to be in the 20s. Thank you. Uh, so, Athena, you elaborated that you're not being sarcastic um, and that people dying isn't the only measurement. For sure. Um, we could talk about people not dying. We could talk about the conditions in the West Bank. They could get considerably better. They could get considerably worse. So I'm not, I still don't really understand. Um, anyways, let's go on. We have one more super chat, and then I want to take it to BBS. We have some questions on the Sulha BBS. Plutus also... Uh, active community member on our discord Plutus, thank you for the five dollars Plutus goes brilliant or how do you get buy-in for the plan amongst israelis jewish orgs at a grassroots level and have them lobby this interest with the israeli government good question this is something i'm constantly thinking about so i'll be frank my background is less uh, activism Okay, uh, for good or for bad and it creates for me a different perspective i'm more in the lo- perspective of uh, civilian society, more in the lobbying uh, perspective, more in engaging with the Knesset and more engaging with uh, institutions. So maybe I have a very different perspective. And for, and I don't know if it's good or bad, but it I, I'm less in the position. And I think it's important, by the way. I, I do think there should be an organization of engaging between Israelis and Palestinians. And uh, it's very important. But I, I think... Some issues cannot be solved from the ground up only. It needs to be solved also by having a top-down approach. Because the bottom-up is important, the top-down is important. They need to work together. And we need to create a better reality that... uh, By the way, I have a small example, actually. I I spoke to a Palestinian recently, um, someone I uh, find... uh, I enjoy talking to him because he provided me the small details that we Israelis do not hear. And I was joking that maybe Ben and Jerry's should, instead of uh, doing the boycott, should actually just move a factory to uh, one of the Palestinian cities and sell the Ben and Jerry's from Palestine to the Israelis. And then he told me, oh, it's impossible. I'm like, well, what do you mean? The Palestinian, uh, right now, American factories can... I'm not sure it's 100% true, but I do believe it. Uh, There are many restrictions that American companies cannot even open factories in Ramallah or Hebron or anything like that. And I'm imagining to myself, whoa, 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 whoa. Are we saying right now 
we're in a reality that even the if we actually want to help, it's impossible to help. And this is where the NGOs can do stuff, but not everything. This is where the top-down approach is important of lobbying to the Knesset, of pushing civil societies to push those ideas. And also, by the way, voting to the people who are more engageable in this conversation. Uh, so it's important to say it out loud. And this is why it's also important to not only tackle the ground-up NGOs, but also uh, tackle government and top-down institutions. Great. Thank you. Um, let's take it over to BBS, then we'll come back to uh, YouTube chat. So I'm going to share my screen. Uh, for those unfamiliar, BBS uh, would like to... Oops. Oh, damn, I'm on Brave Browser. Oh, it's letting me? Is it letting me? Yes, come on. So B BBS is a blockchain. Brave Browser will not be able to record the... Con Okay, it's I can't share screen right now. It's gonna X out. Yeah, for some reason StreamYard does not work on uh isn't working on um on my uh Chrome, so I'm using Brave. And honestly, probably I should use Brave more often than, than Chrome. Everyone download Brave Brave and everyone go to bbs.market slash sulha. BBS is a Reddit like platform, but built using blockchain technology, which is more censorship resistant and rewards content creators for their posts. So we have a few questions there in the Sulha BBS. Um, let's see. Our first question is from JW. Thank you, JW. JW goes, given the attempt last year to annex parts of the West Bank by the right without much thought or public deliberation, how worried are you that hasty moves by short-sighted Israeli governments will lead to a de facto one state and force Israel to give citizenship to Palestinians under the threat of international sanctions. That's, uh, that's legit. Um, I'll provide the simple answer. Um, from 67, the policy of Israel was not to annex the West Bank. It was actually, and Israel, and not many people know that, but Israel actually embraced the 242 resolution which the idea is to have a um, final international borders with agreement with the two entities. The 242 doesn't refer to the Palestinians specifically, but the spirit of a 242 still tackles the Palestinian and the Israelis. And a one-sided annexation I, in the West Bank, I think it's a very uh, unlikely. Um, even under Bibi, actually, mostly even the Bibi supporters of Fadi was actually bluffing. So um, I, I don't think it's a, actually an event, but we'll, I can be wrong, but it's, I think it's a low likelihood event. Yeah, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back that up and say that, th that the um, threats of annexation, I think, was more just a political move for Bibi Netanyahu to, to swallow the right as he often does come election time. I think many, most Israelis, uh, including those who are considerably, considerably right-wing, understand that uh, one-state solution would be the end of the Jewish state. Um, it's, it's still interesting that there's, 50, there's only 50% support for two states. It's interesting what the other 50% actually want and if they've actually thought about the details. I think many of them haven't really thought about the details or they're Kahanists or they're just okay 
with Palestinians living without the right to vote and don't think that an internal civil rights movement will eventually give them that right. Um, I think it's not so thought out, but yeah. Did you, did you want to say something? Yeah, I agree. The moment you enter the details, you know, I, I say, I saw a comment, someone says, ah, but what's so bad with a one state solution? And in theory, nothing. <laughs> this is me being frank, but in pr- practicality, everything, because even if we want to create a reality that the Israelis and the Palestinians live together and leave, uh, live in a humanistic, secular, and democratic, liberal democratic state, it means, A, you either change the people, or B, you clear the people. Because right now, the people, the people on the land, both people, don't see this common future together. Okay, it's like me saying that the I'm trying to find like a an absurd example that no one will provide. It's like me saying that resolution between Pakistan and India is a one state solution. So easy. They used to be together now under the British mandate. They're practically right. uh, speaking English uh, plus or minus, and uh, they're in the same region. Why not? Same geographical region. And by the way, there are many one staters in the Indian Pakistan conflict. It's not something that is not an opinion. But give me a person that will provide me a plan to integrate Pakistan and India to a one country without a conflict, without a civil war, without a Syria 2.0, very few will actually go into detail. Because the moment you go into details, it becomes a Herculean task, but slowly be- seems impossible. Right. I definitely agree with that. Um, great. Next, uh, next question on BBS. This is from Jordan. Thank you for the question, Jordan. Jordan goes, would a Palestinian state have sovereignty over its security and borders? I think it's a reality that can happen. And this is why I'm not talking about the final map, because I I do not know how the final map will look like. And this is me being frank. But I do know that in Israeli, a process needs to be started in order to achieve it. Okay? And I... And by the way, besides... And there is a moral weight, uh, but I, as Israeli, don't want to control other people. Uh, but there's also a practical uh, approach to it because if you build trust, people are willing to compromise with each other much more. Right now, we're talking about a reality, but trust doesn't exist. So, talking about the final solution uh, or the final resolution uh, for both people is impossible because we're not in a place that even those two people can even uh, agree on basic stuff. And by the way, we used to have more trust in the past. There are many reasons why trust fell by both people from the other side, but we need to start tackling what it's possible. Okay. In order to eventually reach the impossible today. Next we have Another super chat from Yasmin. Yasmin, another new but also active community member. Good to see you here in the live chat. Uh, Yasmin, Yasmin gave 20 pounds. Thank you so much. Knafe funding for Adar and O. So that, mean, that means this super chat must be split, must be divided. Um, or next time you come to Israel, I owe you a Knafe on me. Very soon, actually. Well, that would be hold on ten bucks out of this like forty shekels. Honestly, that's a that's like a big piece of knuff. Okay, you got it. Thanks, Lizmin. We'll take a picture when when he comes. Um, 
Let's see what else we got. Okay, uh, I'm not. I'm not seeing more questions. If anybody has more questions, let me know. Uh, I, I guess I have a few more. Mm-hmm. You said a, a federation can come from two states. Correct. So, to me, it seems like once you have two states, the chance of them becoming federated seems very low. Um, you see, I go back and forth between preferring two states to a federation. And when I talk two states, I prefer it be a confederation because I think that a lot of the reason that two states isn't popular is because there's a lot of the most passionate people living on the land want the land to remain whole, both Israelis and Palestinians. That's like the energy. And to deal with that energy, it's like a confederation has more unity, more more communication, more free travel. And and you know, free travel is something that will need to come with trust and security without a doubt. But it seems like it's just a, a better version of two states. But I'm I'm not I'm not convinced you can go from two states to a federation easily, and it almost seems like pushing a federation might be easier to. And again, I'm not. Yeah, it's, just, it's not. Uh, this isn't a, This it's not a hill I would die on. But when I look at the challenges the two states has, it it's possible that the solution that most people would agree to is a very sophisticated federation with the system of checks and balances that allow for both people their own version of self determination living on the land that could allow for right of return. And it also stops competition within Israel between like the ultra Orthodox and secular communities, which currently exists. So yeah. What are your thoughts? So in, in practice today, we should have, uh, it's partially implemented, but uh, there, there are many joint committees and now I'm going to be a very boring bureaucrat. There are many joint committees, but their goal is to deal with, the technical issues from a standardization of electricity, from standardization of water quality, of import, export, um, signaling. Um, what happened if you have a import of a, a Palestinian car to the Israeli Haifa port and then it needs to go to Hebron? So those issues are already dealt with a joint committees that if we will... And I, I think this is where we need to be careful when we're pushing for a, a one-sided move initially, but we want to push a reality that those, this cooperation will actually increase. Okay, and the reason is that, and here I'm going to be frank for uh, everyone here, the Palestinian people will probably be in the best position for water security in the Middle East, although the water issue is one of the biggest war uh, biggest problem in the Middle East. And one of the biggest reasons is actually because they work very closely with the Israelis. And now most of the problems for the Palestinians are actually internal distribution of water and the lack of ability to connect towns to each other. But right now they do have a connection of high quality water from Israel. And Israel will invest a lot of money. And, you know, I don't want to put names into it. But Israel is capable and willing to invest a lot of money in infrastructure to improve the lifestyle and the welfare of the Palestinian people. As much as we're willing to invest, by the way, to the Jordanian people in some uh, agreements, to the Egyptian people, the, we, there is an interest for uh, secured water uh, facilities. This is why today, where we don't have cooperation like in Ga- the Gaza Strip, 
there is a collapse of systematically of the war infrastructure. And it's not only because of the war. It's because in Gaza, there was overdrilling of the equifiers. There is um, pollution that was not treated and it polluted the only sources of Gaza water. And today, the best solution to provide for the people of Gaza is to build desalination system or to build a pipe that is big enough to provide uh, from Israel to the people of Gaza. So cooperation will actually will be natural in a two-state reality. And we see the same thing happen, by the way, uh, in Europe. But they built many uh, uh, organizations to work with those issues from coal and iron. And now they practically have a parliament. Now we call it the EU. But those technical stuff of uh, boring stuff of how do we standardize trade, how do we connect each other, both stuff eventually lead to a confederation, a federation, if there is enough uh, interest. And uh, by the way, I'll, I'll give actually an example that uh, uh, one of my uh, friends like to give. For the people of Switzerland, it took you know almost 300 or 400 years as separate entities, as cantons, to eventually work together and be one uh, country. And I think history is moving much faster today. So I don't think it will take 300 years for the Israeli Palestinians to be a federation. But a, a viewpoint of 100 years, which is not a lot, 100 years, if we have a two state reality in 100 years, we are a federation or one state, this is very quick. It's actually viable and possible if everything goes correct, uh, right. Uh, but it is possible because naturally we need to work together in the very small space. Well put. And yeah, I, uh, you know, it's tricky because you say a hundred years isn't a long time and like in a historical context, it's just like a blink of an eye. But for people who are suffering from the conflict, it's their whole lifetime and the lifetime of their children's. And for them, it's, it's, it's an amount of time they're not willing to give up. And it, this is tricky because, you know, how can you tell somebody that you don't see the solution they want being viable in their lifetime, right? How can they accept that? Um, and it's not an easy conversation to have. Granted, some solutions, um, some solutions can't happen within a generation. And let me use like a, diff- a different example without trying to open up Pandora's box. But I think that you have uh, like you have the racial justice movement in the United States. And this is not to say that there's not issues that need to be resolved in terms of racial justice, but it seems like a lot of the issues that, that are being spoken about in, in this movement are issues that are solved after generations, right? We're, we're just two generations or so from uh, the end of the civil rights movement. Certain change cannot happen overnight and the people living in, you know, let's say black Americans, they don't want to wait more generations. They want change to happen now, but it's quite possible that the change they're looking for can't happen overnight. And it's a matter of generation. So again, I don't have like a good answer because I understand why people want to improve the quality of their lives today. I just think that certain challenges, especially when they're like complex societal challenges, just can't, can't be fixed in, in one day. They take generations, unfortunately. Um, no, it's sometimes it, hard to it, reconcile. It, it's correct, but it's interesting because psychologically, if you see change, 
if you see improvements with your own eyes uh, within a short-term spam, and this is something that can happen in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, by the way, we can be in a reality that another two or three years, people can drive from uh, much more easily with less checkpoints, with even no checkpoints internally in uh, the West Bank. But if people, uh, so, but it doesn't mean we achieve a one state uh, solution, but maybe, maybe can be achieved in a hundred years. But we can, if we do show there's actual concrete improvement that people can see in their own eyes, it will create a sense of hope. It will create a sense of progress. And, you know, I don't want to enter too much to the uh, American politics, but I, I do think the biggest issue, I think, uh, within uh, uh, in uh, the community uh, in America, but they, they did not see the concrete change happening. And people are not willing to wait, as, as you said. There is a lot of change, there's a lot of improvement, but I think people did not see it in their own communities. This is why I think there's a big difference between different... Uh, communities in America of how they perceive the situation. So if you don't see the improvement and then you hear, however, your group improved by 5% a year, it doesn't help. So people need to see also a visual change, a concrete change, and this can change the, uh, the, the dynamics of uh, this both kind of conversation of long-term. Great. Um... So SBL, thank you for being here. Um, SBL is saying certain things that I, I know many uh, Israelis would find inflammatory. So SBL goes, as a Palestinian, I can never accept apartheid Zionist occupiers on my land. So I'd be happy for you to clarify that position. Are you saying you don't support um, a system of inequality or you don't support Jews living on the land? What, what do you mean by that? Because your last message was saying BDS will continue until uh, the occupation of the West Bank and the Golan Heights ends. But this other statement kind of sounds like you're just saying you won't accept Jews on the land. Um, happy to engage on this topic. I'm just interested in knowing what you're, what what you mean. Uh, we'll, we'll get to a few more, and then we'll wrap it up. We're already going on an hour and a half. We could do an after party, or you have time. You want to hit up uh, Discord Lounge? Yeah, I, I have time. Yes. Cool. Okay. Um, let's see. I saw. So, Dan- Daniel, thanks for the question, Daniel. If there's going to be a one state or federation, what would be the symbols? If there's going to be currency, for example, which people would be depicted on the banknotes? So the symbols symbols is actually a, something that comes up. What will be the national anthem? What will be the flag? Banknotes is actually one I haven't thought of yet. But the, the way I see it, I think people are very tied to their symbols. Israelis aren't going to give up on, on the flag anytime soon, and Palestinians won't give up on their flag anytime soon. So it's possible you have an Israeli flag, you have a Palestinian flag, and then you have a Federation flag, right? You could have, and you could do the same thing with national anthems. Um, banknotes is an interesting one. I, I haven't thought about that, but maybe you could have bo- both leaders on, on banknotes. Um, the, the problem is the, the leaders that we respect that Israelis respect are viewed as terrorists to Palestinians and the leaders that Palestinians respect, we view as terrorists. So, so it's going to be tricky for us. Like you imagine you have a, a bill with Herzl on it next to Yasser Arafat. I mean, <laughs> well, well okay. I don't know how that would work, but yeah. The, 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 you know, the problem with the question is actually, it, 
it's the question to the wrong people. I think the people who will make a foundation a reality is not us. It's actually maybe our children. And this is a question that they need to answer because, and it will only happen if we, this generation, we build the mutual trust between two sides and create a stronger kin state to each people. And this something of talking about federation, we're incapable of imagining because we are not in a reality. We as Israelis can decide to ourselves, the Palestinians can decide to themselves for now, but we are not in a reality that we have enough mutual trust to even contemplate on those kind of things. And I, I, I think the symbol will be probably two people who were just born today but may be making the big peace agreement or the federation agreement on the on the Israeli side and the Palestinian side. So maybe the symbols are actually people who were not born yet. And this is something to think about. And how to make sure that they will yeah. be the symbols in the future, yeah. And uh, Leica adds, thank, thanks Leica, goes, uh, look at the UK model, England and Scot- Scotland have their own bank notes and flags. Right. What, what about, is there like a separate Scottish na- national anthem? Maybe it's the same one, but it's like a bagpipe version. That makes sense. Um, let's see here. So as Bill clarifies, as Bill goes, Adar, I cannot accept the foreign occupation. I have nothing against Jews, but they need to find a homeland in Europe. <laughs> we Palestinians. Uh, uh, so, yeah. so let me <laughs> answer this question. Hold on. Hold on. Let, let me just finish it. We Palestinians did not cause the Holocaust, so it's not fair to take our land. So for those people who are actually point this out, you know, I... I always or, go or, to, or you, I'll you, go you to look the anecdotal. Ver- I will go to you, the anecdotal. You, you look very European. I, I know. Uh, but, uh, you know, if you want me to go back to my homeland, it's in Hebron. I prefer not to be a settler there. I don't know if you, you apparently want me to be a settler. I prefer not to. But, uh, you know, I, I, I prefer not to take your recommendation here. And this is maybe a food for thought for you. And uh, bef- before telling people to go back to places that you don't want them to be. Yeah, I mean, I'll elaborate on that. So first, if we actually look at the demographics of Jewish Israelis, 50% of them aren't Ashkenazi. Uh, They come from the Middle East and North Africa. So the whole go back to Europe, you know, that's only relevant to 50%. And not not to mention the 50% that are Ashkenazi. um, They originate, you know, they were exiled from the land thousands of years ago, and they, they view this as them returning. Now, I very much agree that you don't get, you know, People don't get to return after thousands of years and claim land as their own. I, I, I agree with that. And I can understand why Palestinians view um, Zionism as a settler colonial project. Like, I, I, I get it. You know, Palestinians were living on the land. Um, and then Europeans start showing up um, when, you know, we, we at the time we called ourselves that we had like the Jewish Colonial Trust and the Jewish Colonial uh, Association. Right. So I, I understand why we're perceived as colonizers. We, we came wearing European garb, speaking European languages, uh, not treating the locals with respect, without a doubt. I, I hear that. I understand why we've been, we were rejected in 48, and I understand why we're still rejected today. That being said, this is our home, right? Okay. Even, even if we want to say the, the early settlers, which, you know, we view that as indigenous people returning, but even if I understand in your perspective, we're settler co- colonizers, I get it. We are now their offspring, right? Most Israelis don't know any other home but Israel. Their first language is Hebrew. They don't have a citizenship in any other country. Um, Instead of like these 
pipe dream solutions that involve harming many people, kicking them off a piece of land, which Palestinians living through the Nakba should understand that displacement is, is very harmful. Let's try to ground our solutions in reality, solutions that don't harm people, right? There's a way where Palestinians can achieve justice, where Israelis can live securely. We, we can both win. We need to get out of this zero-sum thinking where one side needs to win, uh, one side needs to lose for the other to win. That's not, that's not the case. Both sides can win. And I urge you, SB, let's work towards those solutions. Israelis are here to stay. Palestinians are here to stay. And we're going to find a way to make it work. We're going to live on this land together. And one day we'll live on this land together as brothers and sisters. I can guarantee that. Uh, and by the way, like this is, I think I mentioned the small story of my discussion uh, uh, with a uh, Palestinian friend, but he told me that American companies cannot open factories in, uh, in uh, the West Bank. And this is maybe a communication to the people who are viewing the conflict from the outside. Maybe the biggest thing that you can review is actually your own country uh, perspective about this conflict and what they are not doing. And, you know, I actually once checked the visa agreement between the Palestinian passport to the rest of the world. And I think I saw like 10 countries that are willing to accept Palestinians as tourists. And, and by the way, there's an t- entire conversation about the problem of not having an airport in the, the West Bank, etc. But in the end of the day, a, the conflict is not the only issue of the Palestinian people. It's also, also the inability... Uh, of acceptance from other countries. And uh, this is not, by the way, me trying to deflect criticism. Israel has much more that it can do and change. But if you're an outsider, I think instead of looking how I can harm the other side, think about how can I help at least one side. And I I can promise you that if you are actually helping one side, it's helping both sides. Yep, and I do wanna I wanna give SBL seventeen the final word. Um, so SBL finishes with saying, "Adar, thanks for understanding. I respect your people, and I hope we can work things out. But please, can Israel leave the West Bank? We can work together. Thanks." So I'd say we we found some compromise here. Um, and I, I don't know if you're new to the channel or if you've been around, but if you're new, I, I hope to to see you um, back. Um, and and hopefully we we can you know see this as. Um, uh, an example of how two opposing sides that five minutes ago seemed that there's literally nothing to reconcile are now way closer to understanding one another. That That's really what we're here to do on this channel. Um, we got one more super chat near Rofe goes, or play the guitar, my brother. If you want, <laughs> we're putting you on the spot, or if you want, we could end it with a song. Um, so I'll be frank. Uh, I decided to study the thing that I'm the most incapable of doing, which is music. And I, so I decided to tackle what, I'm, for me, is the most difficult thing. So I'm still learning and I'm trying to be consistent about that. Hopefully, for the sh- six shekels, I will eventually provide you a performance one day. Whenever after. you're ready. <laughs> Whenever you're ready. They, they do say that learning uh, to play music is one of the best ways to increase your intelligence. So, um, And coordination and probably like spiritual well-being. So, yeah. I should probably do that. And then I, I'm, I don't know how to pronounce any word that starts with an X. Actually, normally you just say Z, right? Zerfis. Zerfis goes, it's for picking up girls. Question mark, exclamation. 
I mean, that's probably like uh, I'm not going to say that's Orr's main motive, but it's probably like a side, a a, a secondary motive. Uh, my my, my <laughs> girlfriend and I are very happy together. Okay, okay, there we go. There we go. Cool. Uh, we're going to continue. We're going to continue in Discord. Before before I share the Discord link, I just want to mention uh, BBS one more time. BBS is a new platform that we're on. It's actually I, I work for that company. That's that's my day job. It's a Reddit like platform built using blockchain technology. You actually earn money for for creating content for sharing posts. So if you like talking about Israel Palestine, if you have things to share, come in once a day, share something. Um, yeah, it's it's not going to make you rich, but it's it's it could be like a nice passive income you can make just for um, just for posting. So I'm gonna share the link come in sign up um you even get you get uh tokens sulha tokens just by signing up you could use those tokens to buy other people's posts you don't need to deposit your own money you get money for signing up and it allows you to interact with the economy very interesting platform um that's that's bbs now we're going to talk about discord we're going to do an after party in the discord lounge sharing it in here um for those new to discord click the link on the left hand side it says lounge you click lounge you'll be connected uh it's a voice chat where anybody can contribute anyone can share or you can just listen um and that's where we're going to do after party there uh or any final words before we uh sign off so i i saw some comments and i will provide a small response in the end of the day again i don't have a solutions for the big problems but I don't think we can talk about the big problems without at least starting uh, something, at least having some momentum. And you you cannot talk about the big issues without, so first of all, solving the small issues, building trust, building a mechanism to discussion. And I'll provide a true example. I, I think that, and people will be surprised, but the relationship between Israel and Lebanon it actually was... It's much better today than ever before. <laughs> and this is a country where we don't have official official peace. And the reason is because we try slowly provide solutions for the small things on the ground. And of course, it was much easier on the bigger spectrum, but pro- by providing small solutions on the ground, you build trust. And then the moment you build trust, you build communication line. The moment you build communication line, it's easier to be uh, able to talk about the bigger problems. And... It doesn't mean there aren't an ability to discuss about the bigger problems, which is we don't, I don't think we have enough time to talk about everything, but we need to talk about seriously, and this is as an Israeli, but we need to start the process today. We cannot do the wait and see. I don't know what the end of the road will be, but we need to start the journey, start the momentum. It doesn't mean everything will go as much as we want, but also t- making a decision to not to decide is a decision, and it seems as the worst decision right now. So this is why this idea of starting and solving the small stuff is more important right now of how solving the big issues, but I think personally are solvable, by the way, but they are incapable of being discussed without building the small steps and the trust. Amen, brother. Or it's been uh, great to have you here. Uh, the first of many, um, without a doubt. Before we wrap up, just friends, what we have coming up in the next few weeks. So as I mentioned at the beginning, I'm going to be at Midburn next week. It's Israel's Burning Man, so I won't be around. But Tal Hagen's going to uh, host a roundtable discussion next Thursday. 
the following Thursday after that. I don't think we have anything booked yet on the 11th. Not entirely confirmed, but there's a good chance we actually have Alan Dershowitz on the show. Um, yep, you've heard it here first. Again, it's not 100% confirmed, but I have a call with him next week. Shout out to community, community member Salam Shalom for, um, for setting that up. The week after that, the 18th, we actually, we're going to have Adam Green on the show from No More News. He is, I think it's fair to call him an anti-Semite, although he does not uh, consider himself one, and he, he's going to make that case. So we are going to have Adam Green. I've been saying a long time we're going to have somebody who clearly shares anti-Semitic views on the show to have a discussion. So we're finally doing it on the 18th. Adam Green will be on. Um, I, I had a call with him last week, and it, it was actually a, a very, it was a great call. Um, despite our, our disagreements. And then what else do we have? That's all we have in the books now, but obviously we'll, you know, we always do at least one show a week. So, um, more coming soon with that much love from Herzl Israel. See you next time. uh, I'm I'm putting on my notes uh, about the knuffer. Yeah, exactly. Yep. I got you. Okay. I got you. See you all in the lounge.